0: Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. Hello and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where in this episode, we are moving away from Egypt and into the land of China. In this episode, we are looking into The Mummy 3, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor from 2008. In terms of the format, we should start with a little background information on the film, then a section on the historical accuracy, and finally, I shall review the film. Right. You are the son of two famous explorers, Evie and Rick O'Connell. As much as they would like you to be in college studying, you have inherited their first for adventure and are now on a dig in China. You begin to uncover a giant colossus, and then slowly a doorway appears. You have a feeling that you have found something significant, But little do you know, that you have also uncovered an ancient evil, before you stands the tomb of the Dragon Emperor. film had a budget of $145 million and went on to gross $403.4 million. This means that, out of the three films, it was the least successful, though it was still hugely profitable. Over the years, there have been several rumours as to why Rachel Weitz did not return as Evie for this final instalment these range from her not wanting to be cast as a woman with a 21-year-old son, to her not liking the script, to the idea that she did not want to leave her child for the filming. Rachel Weitz herself squashed this final rumour by pointing out that in 2008, she was actually in two other films, Definitely Maybe and Brothers Bloom. Instinctively, when I see this, I do just wonder if maybe her schedule was just a bit busy that year. It is also worth noting that she was not the only cast member to decline a return. In the original script for this film, Arnold Voslow was going to return as Imhotep as an unlikely ally to take down the Dragon Emperor. However, reportedly he did not like the script and so refused. As a result, Oded Fair also declined to come back as the Magi Ardeth Bey, likely because his character does not really makes sense when there is no Imhotep in the picture. Interestingly, there was going to be a fourth film, which was penned to be titled Rise of the Aztecs, though this ended up being cancelled due to the 2017 Mummy reboot with Tom Cruise. In terms of the cast, sadly, only two of the original main cast members returned for this film, Brendan Fraser as Rick O'Connell and Jonathan Carnahan as Jonathan. Meanwhile, Maria Bello replaces Rachel Weitz as Evie, Luke Ford plays Evie and Rick's now grown up son, Alex, and Jet Lee plays a villainous dragon emperor. In this next part of the episode, we shall examine the historical accuracy of the film. Before we begin, I feel it is worth me putting out a little disclaimer, as I do not want to claim to be anything that I am not. I am an Egyptologist. This film is set in ancient China, which although I am fascinated by, I am far from an expert in. Therefore, although I have done my best with this part, and I really have put in a lot of effort, it is worth bearing this in mind, as not only am I not as knowledgeable on ancient China, but I also have less resources available to me. With that out of the way, let us continue. First things first, the Dragon Emperor was loosely based on Qin Shi Huang, who was the ruler of the Qin Dynasty and first emperor to rule over a unified China. However, whilst Qin Shi Huang ruled the Qin Dynasty, in the film the Dragon Emperor rules over the Han Dynasty, which ruled at a slightly later date. At the beginning of the film, there is a flashback scene to ancient China where it claims that there were several assassination attempts on the Dragon Emperor due to his growing power. This is indeed inspired by Qin Shi Huang, as there were several assassination attempts on him for this reason. The flashback scene then goes on to claim that the Dragon Emperor built the Great Wall of China. Once again, the building of the Great Wall of China is largely attributed to Qin Shi Huang, although it is also worth noting that the wall was being built for well over a thousand years, and so, unsurprisingly, he was not the only builder of the wall. Essentially, when Qin Shi Huang became the ruler of the state of Qin, there were several states ruling in different parts of China that were at war. Meanwhile, there were also frequent attacks from Mongolia, As a result of this, these different states built individual walls both to defend themselves from each other and from Mongolia. When Qin Shi Huang finally became the one ruler of China, he went about connecting many of these walls together, forming the Great Wall of China. However, realistically, even after his death, the wall kept being built and improved upon, most noticeably by the Ming Dynasty over 1,500 years later. Also, the building techniques shown in the film and the large mud bricks, which are about four times the size of modern bricks, are more reminiscent of the building of the wall under the Ming Dynasty, rather than the Qin or Han Dynasties. Further still, The wall's appearance in the flashback scene is also more reminiscent of the wall during the Ming Dynasty, when it had reached its final form. The film then goes on to claim that the Dragon Emperor enslaved many enemies to build the Great Wall for him, and that many of them were buried beneath the wall itself. Firstly, the Great Wall of China was built by a mixture of slaves, peasants, criminals and soldiers, so slaves were indeed used during the building of the wall. As for the claim that many of the bodies were buried beneath it, this is a little less certain, as, from the sources I have seen at least, no bodies of any of the builders have definitively been found. One popular myth has it that the bodies were buried within the wall itself, though this is highly unlikely, as this would have affected the structural antiquity of the wall. It is possible... Even probable that the bodies of those who died making it were buried either underneath the wall or nearby it. In fact, considering that these workers would have been living near the wall during its construction, this argument just makes the most sense. Though, for myself at least, the main quoted evidence I found for this, the story of Men Zhang Yu's bitter weeping, seems a little slim. In this story, Men Zhang Yu's husband dies building the wall she weeps by the wall to such an extent that part of it collapses, revealing the burial of her late husband beneath. Now, I'm not saying that stories such as this cannot contain grains of truth, but they also contain fantasy and symbolism. They are written to entertain and bring forth emotion. At best, I feel such stories should be treated with extreme scepticism when it comes to actual history, and they most certainly do not stand up on their own merit. Instead, they need other pieces of preferably first-hand evidence to back them up. Basically put, this claim by the film may one day be proven correct, but at present there is no actual evidence, or at least as far as I am aware of. The flashback scene then moves on to talk about the Dragon Emperor's wish to become immortal. Once again, this is very reminiscent of Qin Shi Huang, as as he grew older, he did indeed begin to search for ways to become immortal. And in fact, one theory even suggests that he died after taking an elixir containing mercury as part of this quest. Later in this flashback scene, we see a witch curse the Dragon Emperor, and he and his entire army then turn into terracotta. Although the terracotta army were, of course, not real humans, they were built for Qin Shi Huang, and they did depict members of his armies. In fact, they were buried with him, partly to protect his tomb from robbers, and also to protect him in the afterlife. After this flashback scene, we move forward to the year 1946. Alex, the son of Rick and Evie O'Connell, is in China and has just discovered the tomb of the Dragon Emperor. This is where the Dragon Emperor and Qin Shi Huang begin to differ a bit, as the tomb of Qin Shi Huang was not discovered until 1974 when it was accidentally stumbled upon by farmers digging a well. Further, where in the film they find the body of the Dragon Emperor, the burial chamber of Qin Shi Huang has not yet been opened. Also, whilst in the film The Tomb of the Dragon Emperor is found in the desert, the tomb of Qin Shi Huang is located on a grassy plain. The film then goes on to claim that the Dragon Emperor had many people buried alive with him. This is a little more reminiscent of Qin Shi Huang. Further, in general, Qin Shi Huang was infamous for his intolerance and brutality. From 213 BCE, Qin Shi Huang not only banned all philosophical thoughts other than legalism, the philosophy that, in order to maintain order in society, people must obey a set of strict laws from those in authority, but he also implemented mass book burnings. Further, he had over 450 scholars killed who went against these laws or his way of thinking. What a lovely and open-minded chap he must have been. Moving on, Later, still in the film, Evie and Rick are sent to China to return the eye of Shangri-La. This artefact is completely fictional, and in fact, even the location of Shangri-La is fictional, and first appears in the 1933 novel, Lost Horizon. During this journey, Rick and Evie discover Alex is also in China, and although they are angry that he has left college, they go to see the chariot burial of the Dragon Emperor, which has been moved to a museum. A few things here. Firstly, there is absolutely no way such a well-preserved chariot burial would have been moved from a tomb that quickly. And, for myself at least, I would argue that such a find should remain in its tomb, especially considering how well-preserved the tomb was. Secondly, during this scene, both Evie and Rick make a point of leaning against the terracotta horses. To me... This would be a bit like going to the British Museum and leaning against the Rosetta Stone. Thirdly, when Rick passes the Ayo la back, he throws it around and pretends to almost drop it, whilst everyone else stands around laughing nervously. All of this makes me think that if I was running a dig, both Evie and Rick would quickly be asked to leave. The final point in this film I would like to talk about is a familiar one for me that comes up time and time again in this type of film. On the back of the chariot burial, there is a coffin that people in the film constantly call a sarcophagus. A sarcophagus is a box usually made of solid stone, which is designed to hold the coffin or coffins of the deceased. A coffin, on the other hand, is what the deceased is directly buried in what we have in the film is most certainly a coffin. Overall, although I am far from an expert when it comes to Chinese history, this film seems to have tried to remain somewhat accurate during the flashback scene, as the story of the Dragon Emperor does seem to follow the same rough route of the life of Qin Shi Huang, though this scene is not without its flaws. For instance, its depiction of the Great Wall of China is more reminiscent of what was built by the Ming Dynasty. Further, as the film goes on, things become less accurate, and the story of the Dragon Emperor and Qing Shi Huang start to have variations. For instance, the burial place of the Dragon Emperor is in the desert, while Qin Shi Huang was buried in a grassy plain. Also, the Eye of Shangri-La is not a real artefact, and both Evie and Rick continue to hold many poor attitudes and practices when it comes to archaeology. We have now arrived at the review section for the film. In this part, I shall go over what I feel are the good and bad elements, and then rate the film out of 10. To begin with, although there are arguments about whether this film should have stayed in Egypt or not, considering the direction this film took, my initial feelings is that Jet was a good option for the new villain. Although, it is also fair to say you don't see that much of him, and he never really feels as if he is giving it his all. This is partly down to the fact that, due to his schedule, he was not able to make most of the filming, and as such, for the most part, he is portrayed either in terracotta form, or as a rotten corpse, complete with horrendous CGI i also feel that the film misses an opportunity here as there are surprisingly few good fight scenes and i would argue that none of them involve jet lee the closest thing he has to a proper fight scene was near the end of the film and much like with many of the scenes in the film it was ruined by unnecessary slow motion however in my opinion the dragon emperor is an underrated character And basing him off of Qin Shi Huang was a good idea, as he was not only well known for his brutality and wished to become immortal, but as the man was the one who united China, it is not ridiculous to think that in this weird, terracotta, mummified form, he would try to take over the world. In fact, considering that the historical Imhotep, the villain of the first two mummy movies, was the architect behind the step pyramid, on paper, at least, chin Shi Huang makes more sense to base a villain off of. Though, of course, the reason Imhotep was used was because of the 1932 classic rather than actual history. Moving on, when we first see Brendan Fraser in this film, he is fly-fishing, ends up getting a hook caught in his neck and then shoots a load of fish. I will admit, I always feel happy seeing Brendan Fraser at Rick O'Connell, And I do like this scene. I feel it gives me just a little boost of serotonin and sometimes that's all you need. I will also say that Evie becoming an author in this film does make sense for her character, as does her slowly becoming bored of that life. I do also enjoy that the novels she writes are called The Mummy and The Mummy Returns, as this is a fun little easter egg. Though, of course, it is hard not to feel a little bit sad every time you see Maria Bello in the role of Evie rather than Rachel Weitz. I do not want to be too harsh on Maria Bello here. After all, she is simply an actor doing her job and I do feel she tried to do the role justice. But unfortunately, for myself at least, there just is no replacing Rachel Weitz as Evie and I do not feel that Maria Bello and Brendan Fraser had the same organic chemistry. When it comes to Jonathan Carnahan, Evie's brother, Jonathan, I personally felt that he stepped back into the role as if he had never left it. And although the script often was a little lacking, I do feel that Jonathan Carnahan made an admirable attempt at making it work on his end. Further, near the beginning of the film, we find out that he has opened a nightclub and this is very appropriate for his character. Further, I enjoy the little nod to the first two films here, as the club is called Imotaps. However, there are one or two scenes that are basically just used as jokes for Jonathan that really should have been more. For instance, at one point, Jonathan gazes out at the paradise that is Shangri-La, and he makes a joke about making a casino there. That's it. We see Shangri-La for less than 10 seconds in this film, just so that he can make this joke. I feel that this is a serious underutilization of this scene, as our heroes are literally standing on the border of this magical land. Moving on, when it comes to the use of the terracotta army here, I felt that this may be a little bit silly, but at least it was a bit original and it was a logical way of giving the Dragon Emperor an army. Speaking of Seli, at one point in the film, our heroes travel into the Himalayas and end up getting into a fight with the Dragon Emperor, during which yetis come to the aid of our heroes. This scene is ridiculous and badly CGI'd, but I will admit I liked it, and I feel it is one of the most iconic scenes in the film. Whenever I see this film, this is a scene that I mainly look forward to as it's just the right mix of random, ridiculous and laughable to weirdly work. When it comes to the music throughout the film, it is never bad but I do think that of the three films it is the weakest. However, there are points where they add an oriental tone to the music which is really nice, though I also feel that it's incredibly underutilised. Also, although I do admire that the risk the writers took in changing the setting of this film, I do feel that for a large part it leads to the film feeling quite empty. As already mentioned in the background information section of this episode, only Brendan Fraser and Jonathan Carnahan return from the main cast, and although I feel they stepped back into their roles well, I can't help but miss the other cast members and I do think that it leads to the film feeling quite hollow. This is not particularly helped by the script, which is uneven at best. Firstly, although there are some parts that I did find funny, such as Jonathan's distress at seeing Evie and Rick bringing yet another mummy back to life, often the film tries too hard when it comes to humour, and it feels like someone trying to do a poor imitation of the first two films, without truly understanding what made them great. As Kind Of has already been touched on, I also felt that for the most part, the CGI really ruined this film. I mean, the CGI in The Mummy franchise has never been that good, but when the Dragon Emperor turns into a three-headed dragon towards the end of the film, it makes the infamously bad CGI of Dwayne Johnson as a scorpion look like it had been sculpted by Michelangelo himself. Worst of all, however, was how I felt at the end of this film. With The Mummy, I felt a sense of happiness and satisfaction as I saw the credits begin to roll. With The Mummy Returns, I felt the same and was pleased that they had managed to capture that same magic. With this one, I didn't really feel anything at the end, and in a way, that is the worst crime of all. In terms of the reviews for this film, they were pretty poor. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a critic score of 13% and an audience score of 30%. And on IMDb, it has a score of 5.2 out of 10. As for the general consensus, it's that this is a disappointing sequel and that the missing actors, especially Rachel Weisz, seriously harmed it. I do feel that 13% is a little harsh for this one. However, I do agree that it was disappointing, especially when compared to the first two films, which in my opinion are not only real classics, but also the two best films I have reviewed since doing this podcast. Overall, I would give this film a 5 out of 10. It is not necessarily a film I would recommend, but if you have watched the other two films and feel a need to complete the series, that's fair enough, to be honest. Thank you very much for listening, and if you have enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing, liking, leaving a comment, and join me next week, where on Monday, I shall be looking at a film I have been wanting to watch for quite a few years. The Adventures of Adèle sec from 2010, and then join me on Thursday, where I shall be joined by a guest, Oliver Reason, who last joined me to look at Plan 9 from Outer Space. This time, we shall be watching, once again, an entirely un-Egyptian film, He-Man, Masters of the Universe, the live-action film from 1987, starring Dolph Lundrum and Courtney Cox. I hope you all have a great week. And see you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince.